Smiths. Hi, Carruthers. My name is Tim Wright and I am not Carruthers. My name is Lloyd Shepard and I am Lloyd Davis. And welcome, welcome, welcome to the Riddle of the Sands Adventure Club podcast. Number 26. The last one. Ultimate edition. This is where we record the events of the novel, The Riddle of the Sands. We discuss them. Day by day. Day by day, because this book is curiously specific about dates and locations. It is, it is very much is. And it's set in, we think, 1898. We think that's correct. Starting in September the 23rd in London. Yep. And ending today... On October. October the 26th. 26th, the last last day of the book. The last place mentioned is is Harlingen. Yes. In uh, the Netherlands. So, all the business of, of yesterday when Carruthers is finding out about what the Riddle of the Sands actually is, yes. and ends up basically um, grounding the, uh, the... Is it the Cormoran? Is, is that yes. The, is it the Cormoran? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, the, and the lighter, <laughs> of which there was much discussion yesterday, yeah. uh, grounding them on the Sands. And then he rose off to he rose meet off up to, with Davis. He rose off to meet up with Davis and Nordenay. And then confront... Dolman, yes, about his dastardly ways. You are, you are, a, you are a wicked spy. And then spirited him away to to England with his yeah. daughter, with his delightful daughter. So the plan is to leg- leaving the stepmother behind. The stepmother's is the stepmother mentioned? <laughs> yes, he's yes. I don't know what that's about, but it was basically that they have a little half hour conversation. The brother says a scene with the stepmother, the memory of which rankles in me yet. What does that mean? Yeah. After all, she was a sensible woman. Well, the stepmother. What does that mean? The stepmother is our favourite character in the in the movie version, isn't she? I know. She's, well, she's, she's now becoming my favourite character in this because basically they have a half hour conversation, the husband and wife, in which she, being a sensible woman, Joe's, oh yeah, you're going to leave with the, your daughter, and I'll never see you again. Yeah. Okay. Cheers then. Bye. Anyway, so they go and confront Dolman. Uh, basically, the plan is to leg it from Northern Eye back to London. Really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So they sail off in the boat. And they go off Rotom. So coming Rotem. up, you're going to talk about Rotom. or Oog. Sorry? Rotom or Oog. Rotom or Oog. That's the Dutch pronunciation well of the, well uh, the main well island. Well done. So you're going to get us I'm basically talk- from Northern Eye back to... I'm going to talk about getting from Harlingen. Northern Eye to Ostmahorn. Yeah. And then they get, jump on the road and train, he says, with the little detail. Okay. I've got a bit more detail about how you might do that. Good. Because we need to know how we might actually do it. Because... Yeah. That's something maybe we need to remind people that the idea with us talking about this book from day to day yeah. and it being so curiously specific about dates and locations is that perhaps we could go and do this adventure. Yes, indeed. Replay it on exactly the same dates from September, October. And we are actually working with unbound.co.uk, unbound.co.uk. to try and raise some funds to get out there, replay this adventure and then republish... The Riddle of the Sands, but with our own notes and details of what it's like to do a modern day adventure yep. alongside the original text. Yep, yep. Now, if that appeals to you, if you go to unbound.co.uk, you can pledge your support, and for £25, you can get this hardback edition of yes. a rather beautiful thing with lots of maps and notes. So, with uh, the original text of the book alongside our scribbles, findings, maps, yeah. illustrations. Timetables, oh, time arguments yeah. about canals, all that, sluices, all that. locks, yeah, head cheese. By the head way, cheese. food. Did you see that the Guardian on Saturday in the Guardian food thing? There was a piece about head cheese, Ooh, no, like it was going to be fashionable in North London. <laughs> oh, I didn't believe it either. No, no. Uh, so if you'd like to get a book about that, you'd also get a field audio book because we're going to read out the book in exactly the right places on exactly the right date. That's the yeah. plan. 
Uh, and you, then you'd also get access online to our month-long adventure while we're out there, and we'd get to meet people and show you the, that part of the world. Yep. So that's that's the deal. So unbound.co.uk, Riddle of the Sands. We're halfway there, aren't we, on the We bit. are, and we're basically going to use the next few months, well, we're to, gonna, to we're two gonna or three it. months, to, to try and get the other half without spending all this time doing bloody podcasts. And <laughs> so shall I talk about getting Northern Eye to Osmohorn? Yes, and then I will tell you about Dolman falling up, because yes. he, he meets a sticky end. He does, and then I will talk about getting from Osmohorn to London. Okay, good. Does that sound like a plan? That's a, that's a plan. So the, the, the in the book, uh, now, I, I couldn't find my copy this morning. Can I just borrow yours? Yeah, of course you can. To up the Ems on the flood, yeah. and to Dutch Delftsiel, I urged. So I'm assuming that means going up literally into the Ems and up the river. And, yeah. Into yeah, that makes sense. Uh, uh, no, thought Davis, it was too near Germany, because as we've, dis- as we've discussed, the Ems is the border between... Yeah, well, uh, disputed Nether, border. Nether, yeah, a disputed Nether. border. And there was a tidal cut through from Boost Teeth, Better to dodge in behind Rotom Island or Rotom Uch. Rotom Uch. Um, so on we press past Mehmet over the Juister Reef and the Corin's buried millions. Now, on Navionics, from Northern Eye to Osmohorn, which is their destination of which more shortly, is 41 nautical miles as the crow flies. Right. But, as, I mean, you can see on there, and I'll put this What have you got? It? Okay. You can see the... It's quite hard to see how they would get through. It'd be fiddly, wouldn't it? it it's at least as fiddly as getting from, you know, yeah. over here. The easier way would have been to go round the outside of the islands and then down yeah. through that gap there but they, they seem to not do that they go, no. inside, they go inside the islands to stay covered but 41 miles that's quite a long way isn't it wouldn't it take them a, take, take them a fair old well you're the guy taking sailing lessons fair old you should take, know them a year. well it doesn't actually say when they get there does it that's a very good point it doesn't say no that evening that evening. that evening after threading the maze of okay so they got out at 5 o'clock the in the morning on the 26th of Thingy, and so, yeah. they're, they're, so they're saying it's taken them twelve taken hours, them twelve or so. hours, yeah, or fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Say, give um, them fourteen hours, yeah, to do forty miles. This is a bit that we were talking about. He says, "Give me the helm," he said, half to himself, meaning Dorman. Mm. Sea's too bad outside. There's a shortcut here. Thanks, I said. I know this one. I don't think I meant to be sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> they're all channel snobs now. So, <laughs> Rotemaouch is the only island in the Dutch. Frisian Islands that he's mentioned. Yes. Um, now Rotterdam is a sort of mirror image of uh, Mehmet. Ah. Um, in that it's not. It's no longer inhabited. I heard it's a bird reserve. It's we a can't bird reserve. To go on it in the same way that Mehmet is. Yeah, it's a bird right? reserve the same way that Mehmet is. There's actually three islands there now. Ah, yes. There's Rotterdam, Rotterdam Platt, and then another small one. I can't remember the name of. Rotterdam is the only one that's ever been inhabited because it used to have a warden on it. Oh, last, not another loony person who yeah. lives on the road well, with the their last family. Water I found, I, that's I, what happened on Mehmet, I'll you have, found that. I'll have to put this on the blog. So that's the I same found, thing going on. I found some lovely pictures of of the family living on the island, the last Vogt, as it's called in, in Dutch. Yeah. Mr. Toxopius. Toxopius, T-O-X-O-P-E-U-S. Is that a Dutch name? Sounds uh, Greek. Well, there's quite a lot of Toxopius mentions around Osmohorn, so I think it must be a Dutch Frisian name. And there's some amazing pictures of them living on the island and then the, the shed. But basically where they lived was in the north-west corner of the island. And the other thing that these pictures show, which is something we've not talked about before, is that the the, the sea between Rotomuch and the mainland used to freeze. Used to be oh, able to walk, shallow enough. walk on the ice from Rotomuch to to Holland. Now, I wonder if that's because it's so much wow. shallower. And there's pictures of people standing on mountains of crushed ice and walking, that's the people walking across the mainland for supplies. Gosh. That's had an interesting history about ownership. Have you heard of Dona McCarthy, the fourth Earl of Clancarty? Well, of course I haven't. 
So, Tony McCarty, born, Earl of Concarty. Born in Blarney, of course. This sounds like a limerick. In, about six, in 1668. Or, or a right? Clary Hugh. Died in Hamburg, St Pauli, where we stayed ah. on the 1st of October 1734. Now, he was an Irish supporter of James II. Oh, I see. Okay, so yeah. he was, uh, he was a Catholic a, He was a Catholic, although his yeah. mother was a staunch Protestant, as far as I can tell. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London for his part, and he escaped in 1694 to James II's court on the continent, returned to England, only to be turned in again by his brother-in-law, Lord Spencer. Nice. Uh, William III, William of Orange, of Holland, obviously, yes. said that he had never been bothered so much over anything so trivial as the matter of that little spark clancarty. Um, <laughs> anyway, he was allowed to flee to the uh, continent, and most of his estates were taken away. In 1706... He bought the island of Rotomouk. What a fool! Given okay. the fact it moves around, he lived. He lived there. The this, is, this, is, this is all on Wikipedia. I have to check this out. He lived there with his libertine household until they were washed away by the Christmas flood of 1717. Yeah, idiots. <laughs> <laughs> all, all that bloody history just for that gag at Does the it, end. Do you remember the Karen Blixen story about the, the <laughs> island being taken over by the waves? Yeah, yeah. And from that year on, he spent his winters elsewhere, but returned to the island each summer. McCarthy was a typical adventurer, crossing the Wadden Sea on his yacht and making a living by collecting shipwrecks and washed-up merchandise. Okay. The authorities disapproved his methods and suspected him of supporting Jacobite cause. He was commonly known as the Crazy Earl. The Crazy Earl of Rotten. So we've got a crazy Irish Earl owning this. this That's quite now, now, And then we've got Childers, a, another... Uh, oh, Irishman of yeah, he's of, a uh, Protestant, though, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the you know, the, the Irish connection yeah, yeah. continues. Well, just just to throw in because I'm going to talk about people going overboard and yeah, and yeah. suicide in general. Yeah. Around this time, there's a German sociologist who does the first ever sort of quantitative analysis of suicide across Europe in about in the 1890s. Yeah. And his main conclusion was that Catholics are more likely to kill themselves than Protestants. That's his first that was the first scientific discovery through us. He's one of the inventors of sociology as it were. Anyway, I've got a little uh, little sound sound institute interlude. Have you what have you got? Oh, that we're going to get familiar with that sound. That's the sound of the wind at yeah, Rotterdam. Yeah. Found this uh, site called Dear Kitty some blog, but I can't work out who's writing it. And she if it is a she, I'm assuming Kitty's a girl a woman's name. Um, she sailed I from boat's name from from well no, it's, it's not it's just a general blog it's a, one, and in the middle of it she sails to Rotterdam in, tw- in September 2012 ah so we've got an example so of how you actually do sail so there's there. some lovely pictures and video of so you uh, can do galliots, it. Dutch galliots sailing from the mainland I found a site where you can organise day trips from Harlingen oh places perfect like that, in these beautiful Hey, so we get to right. So we go to Harlingen and then go back out to Rotterdam. We could get the sail out round, round to for Rotten. a day trip. For a day trip. Oh, we should do that. It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Well, she talks about. She describes quite vividly the the, the galliot just settling on the sand. Oh, they do just leave, and stay, stay there. there, and then he climb down, you know, on a ladder onto the and then walk across in in shallow water up to the island. Oh, that's so proper rid of the sand. That's proper rid of the sand experience. My question to you is this: Yeah, of So that's fine that we can go and have a little look at Rotterdam Island. Yeah. But your your Navionics suggests to me that trying to get from Nordenai to Ostenhorn. Yeah. Very difficult. Bit tricky. Very difficult. I suppose there's two approaches. One one approach would be to actually do it in a, uh, in, shall we say, a slightly more motorised vessel. A rib. A rib. Presumably you can get across, you know, when, when the tide's high, you can presumably get across pretty, fairly sharpish. Yeah. I did try and find some example that, of, of somebody sailing this, but I couldn't couldn't find anything of course there's another challenge which I haven't talked about yet is you can't actually sail to Ostermore oh yeah you because oh, yeah. do you um, want to talk about that now or shall we well shall I get over? us to Ostermore 
Shall I get this yeah. twice horn, or do you want to? No, well, let me. No, because yeah, we, yeah, well, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, probably yeah, what we've got to do is because. The next thing that before they get to Osmond, something something, something, happens. something significant happens. Something happens. All right. Just a little footnote, by the way. You know, one of the other island there. I just I, only only because I, I was interested was that there's another one called Shimonikug. Yes, that's the next one along. Is that the it? next one along? Yeah. Right. What I didn't understand about that. There's a moment in history here. Is did you know it's the last place in Europe where the Germans surrendered in World War Two? Was it in the whole of Europe? Yeah. Even after, because we said that, they, that Admiral Dönitz had surrendered, yeah, yeah. funnily yeah. enough, in Flensburg. In Flensburg, but this place still held out till the 11th of June, 1945. <laughs> Hundreds of SS troops, along with members of the SD, fled to the island, so that there were more German soldiers on there than there were the native population. After the Germans surrendered, the Germans on the island failed to accept the surrender, but the Canadian forces responsible for the sector that included the island did not attack them to force the surrender. After several months of negotiation, the German oh. commander did agree to respect the surrender and the German soldiers were evacuated to Wilhelm Harbour. That's quite funny, isn't it? It is funny. Again, bloody Childers. He's, he's, it's ridiculous how much sort of vibe he it's has for, uh, for you know, what's going to... Uh, I wonder war. how much of that was down to the Canadians not forcing it, though. Well, yeah. That might, well, I guess so. But also, they must have had quite a lot of food and fresh water. True. To so hang out. Must be a there. big place. I didn't look into. I didn't Can really you imagine it. being one of the island's native population? With look, all these, it's finished. With all these SS officers just, wandering around, pretending just, the war hadn't finished. You just bugger off, please. Well, you'd be quite polite to me because they're probably quite psycho. Yeah. Now, what I want to talk about, of course, is Dolman. Yes. And the fact that he doesn't make it to Osmohorn because he disappears off the back of the boat. He does. Clara was at the jib sheet. I had the chart and the tiller. There was a bobble of sea, and we both had heaps to do, and well, I happened to look round, <laughs> and he was gone. And well. He hadn't spoken for a minute or two, but I believe the last thing I heard him say, I was hardly attending at the time, for we were in the thick of it. <laughs> it's very odd, isn't it? Was something about a shortcut again. He must have slipped over quietly. He had an ulster and big boots on. We cruised about for a time, but never found him. So... Two things about that that worry yeah. me. One is his daughter's on board and they yeah. don't really bother looking for him very much. Yeah. They just go, oh, well, yeah. let's go. Clara's going, hmm. <laughs> There's not a lot of distress or care. No. Is well, so there? they've left the stepmother behind in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And now they just. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's one element of it. And the second element that I, I wonder about a reader in 1903 thinking about that is about. No sense of distress about the fact that this is clearly a suicide. Mm. And attempting suicide mm. was illegal yeah. in 1903. Is uh, it still? No, it basically, it, it remained... Oh, this, this is what I want to talk about. Yeah. I want to talk about going overboard yeah. and committing suicide at sea. Yeah. And also the issue of... Surely that idea laugh, of a laugh a minute, folks. Well, I I think I can I can make this <laughs> I can make this somewhat amusing. I want maybe maybe let's talk about people falling overboard. Well, let's start with the idea of does it happen very often? Yes. Does it that people just sort of fall overboard? Is suicide at sea a, a problem? A, a, well, it, can I find it in other literature or yeah. real? That? Well, uh, no, it isn't. Even to this day, what I did find in my searches, which I thought is, oh, God. That, you know how the internet has become just full of lists? 
basically. Yes, I've just seen the headline to this come up. Yeah, this is on therichest.com. Ten people who <laughs> fell off cruise ships and shockingly survived. <laughs> Unbelievable. I won't go through them all. They're all named and listed as yes. to who they are. It says, according to cruisejunkie.com, uh, yeah. I have never been on that site. No. Cruisejunkie.com. Imagine being a cruise junkie. I think 22.1 million people took a cruise vacation in 2014. There were only 22 incidents of man overboard, brackets, MOB. In other words, tourists have a one in a million chance of falling off a cruise ship. I think that's probably probabilistically bollocks. And Miami-based maritime attorney Jim Walker says, alcohol is involved in 40% of these cases. (laughs) Yes, so that's all the statistics. And the other 60%? Well, that's the clue, isn't it? So here's an example in 2009. They say the crew of a pilot boat saw Larry Miller clinging to a boy in the shipping channel of the Sunshine Skyway. The carnival inspiration was returning to the port of Tampa in Florida around 4am when Miller climbed over a railing to get a better view of a passing boat. (laughs) He slipped and fell. Miller clung to the boy for three hours before he was rescued. He was treated for minor injuries at Bayfront Medical Centre. What the 46-year-old man was doing boat-watching at four in the morning remains a mystery. Presumably, it's in warmer waters, the survival. Yes, exactly. I think we've gone cruise ships. That's right. If you jumped off the back of one of the fjord cruises, you wouldn't be lasting more than 30 seconds. No, you wouldn't. I couldn't find many examples of people in sailing ships doing this, presumably because sailors like being on the sea don't they it's not quite the same thing the other great target is not just um, cruise ships it's the Staten Island Ferry oh really yeah that that's quite common apparently there's so many people using it I suppose yeah 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 it's a long way as well so two good examples famous examples of that are Albert Ayler the experimental jazz saxophonist do you know about him he's a rather when you say famous (laughs) he played saxophone at John Coltrane's funeral did he he did Honestly, he is the he is quite unlistable. A lot of his stuff. Really, uh, anyone who played saxophone at John Coltrane's funeral. He's more thing. experimental than Coltrane. Blimey. And then he and then he ended up throwing himself in the river. Maybe he couldn't stand Poor what he was He's avant avant garde. I won't be using that as the musical interlude, although there is one coming up. All right. And the other one, I, of course, I'd say I had remembered this is Spalding Gray. Oh, of course, he threw himself he off did. the ferry. And he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, the person. I think of when I think of anybody disappearing off a boat is Donald Crowhurst. You know about him, don't you? I don't you? know about Donald Crowhurst. Do you not know about no. Donald Crowhurst? I'm amazed you don't know Who's about Donald Crowhurst. Donald Crowhurst. I've had this book since I was a kid right. called The Strange Voyage of Donald Crowhurst. I don't know. And I always wanted to write, do a play about it or an interactive thing. Yeah. I was obsessed with Donald Crowhurst right. for quite a long time. Still okay. am, really. Okay. Although now they are making a movie about it. How are they? Curiously produced by someone who I know who I think maybe got the idea for it from me that's quite hard isn't yeah it? yeah yeah but uh, but although there's been documentaries about him never there's a very good documentary I've never about heard him. of him I'm going to look him up what are you talking he basically was in the first round the world yacht race right as the most sort of unprepared and amateur person trying to do it yes and he ended up he, he was a radio ham uh, expert and he basically went out and Colin Firth's playing him there you see you see that Colin, was my idea. <laughs> Colin Firth set sail with biopic of doomed yachtsman Donald Crowhurst. That was my idea. It's a tale of ambition, adventure, madness and tragedy. Yeah, it is. He basically had, he went out in a very unseaworthy boat in a rush, had to 
stop in South America for repairs, which was, of course, invalidated the non-stopness yeah. of the race, yeah. realised that he was not going to finish or even win yeah. and this was going to be financial disaster for him because he put all his family money in yeah. and more he was going to ba- he was going to be bankrupted and ruined yeah. so instead of just coming clean he went off into the atlantic yeah. and faked his position yeah. for several months falsified his location according to the guy yeah kept a false logbook um saying that he was still in the race and going around the world Oh. And then, because everybody else was sort of like racing with him quite so hard, one by one they all fell out uh, of the race, and he ended up being the, in the lead. So he was going to have to come back home to win the race, yeah. having just actually bobbed around in the Atlantic. Oh, I cheating. see. Oh, I see. I see. And he had a terrible mental crisis. His logbook portrayed a mind unravelled by the pressures of the race. Right. So, he, so they find that's... his. They they eventually find his boat with him not on it. Yes. Some Super Eight footage from a camera the BBC gave him. Yes. And two logbooks. One his imaginary <laughs> "I'm winning the race" one, and the other one which is "I'm talking to God" logbook. I can see why you'd find this attractive as a, a piece of uh, writing. Of course. It's of amazing. Course. I can't, I can't recommend enough the um, the original Sunday Times journalist book called I think it's called The Strange Voyage of Donald Crowhurst. But I also say the documentary is very good, if only because if you can not cry when listening to the son talk about it, you're, you're a tougher is, man. Is, is you're it? a tougher man than yeah, I. Oh, and he's, uh, he's Rachel very... Vice is on it as well. That was my idea too. <laughs> Actually, what what unites quite a lot of the people who fall overboard, and this is where we get into the suicide business. Yeah. They're either drunk or mad or both. And, in fact, the only way to get away with trying to kill yourself and not then be put in prison or even, in fact, executed for trying to kill yourself in this time would be if you were uh, mad, if you were seen to be temporarily insane. interesting. There's a class issue here, which is that basically toffs of the time, someone like Dolman would be allowed to have a handgun and a glass of whiskey and do the decent thing. But middle-class, working-class people who tried to kill themselves... If they were unsuccessful, they'd be thrown in prison and tried. And they may even be hanged okay. at this time. Extraordinary. Yes, exactly. I read a book. I, no, I didn't book. A PhD thesis by Sheila Moore called The Decriminalisation of Suicide. At exactly at this time, in the late 1890s, Karl Marx's daughter killed herself. Mm. But they didn't call it that because they said she was temporarily insane and mm. therefore it was okay. So she could get buried in a mm. graveyard. Do you know this? Because in your first novel you've got some reference to this. Is that actually suicides used to be, because they couldn't get buried in a graveyard, they used to be buried at a crossroads with a stake through they their did. heart. Didn't they? But you no, well, only, suicide, only suicides who escaped justice. Yeah. Okay. So if you, if, you were, if you were due in court and yeah. you killed yourself the night before... Yeah. Um, then you were, right up until the 1830s, you were buried upright at a crossroads with a stake through your heart. Right. So, exactly, again, what we always say about Childers is, he's writing at a time where the Mm. modern world is coming into being Mm. through technology, but also in terms of sort of women's emancipation, uh, the growth of the middle class, you know, all kinds of... Leisure. Everything is shifting, Mm. and including... Attitudes to suicide is exactly at this. Is it attitudes to suicide or attitudes to mental health? Well, that's a really good point, isn't it? Because this PhD thesis by Sheila Moore is very good about that. It's saying that basically, the nineteenth century is all about attempt uh, that when attempted suicide became a crime against a background of widespread change in the control of deviancy. Uh That that's what the suicide laws are about: was control of deviancy. 
and that this guy, German guy who was measuring whether Catholics yeah. were prone to killing themselves more than Protestants, Durkheim his name was, mm. he's another friend of Karl Marx, by mm. the way, an increase in suicide was a symptom of sickness in the social body. It was considered to be a reflection of the pathological state of societies which had lost their grounding in a firm moral order. It's really interesting, all the way through the 18th and 19th centuries, there's this idea that actually your society can be sickened. Yes. That society is actually a body. But what they're trying ill. to do here is they are trying to medicalise suicide. Yeah. So that you've got to be mad or ill. Yeah. So then it's not a, yeah. an issue of society. An they're issue. deviants. An issue. And, yeah, it's deviancy. It says here that by the 1880s, some 4,000 people with suicidal propensities were being certified by doctors every year as in a need of confinement. So that's mm-hmm. a massive increase. That's in the 1880s. They were starting to put people who tried to repeatedly kill themselves, they started putting them in mental asylums mm-hmm. rather than in prison. Yeah. They put, it's so, not a lot of difference to some of those. No, centuries, no, 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 no. Yeah. So, uh, I, so that then made me think, well, then maybe it's okay that, that they, they're a bit offhand about it. Yeah. It's, it denotes the new modern attitude yeah, yeah. to suicide, which is, okay, well, if you want to do it, go ahead and do it, sort yeah. of thing. But rather than criminalising it or thinking that you've got a mental health problem. Yeah. Now, where does Dolman, dis- does he disappear? Well, I, I, I'm thinking about it. And where does Dolman go? I wonder if he even drowns. Well, he could, How he, deep is the water? If he'd known he the tides, he might have just walked, into, just walked walk off. Over. You see? That's exactly where I was going with it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think that's an interesting idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he, he disappeared, but Particularly he... when he talks about, I know a shortcut. So he may not... He does know a shortcut. Well, one thing that he might have happened, if he did die, he might well have been washed up, because they have a graveyard on Ameland at Ness. I've gone and found a website called 626squadron.co.uk. I found that website too. Yes. Well, look, it says here... Because lots of planes went down around there. Yeah, no, exactly. And so there's, a, there's quite a big war cemetery there. But whoever's running the site, and there's lots of fantastic atmospheric pictures of, yeah. uh, of them all being there. But what it does say is that before this became a war cemetery, it was still a cemetery. Yeah. And further investments show that drowned people were buried there. Unidentified drowned mm. people were washed up on the shore there, and then they would be buried in the cemetery there mm. so on those islands and all the cemeteries there's unidentified bodies of people who just drifted up onto the shore Mr Dolman you see where I'm going with oh, this yeah very nice and there is a Dutch National Office of Missing Persons that now is in the business of trying to identify the drowned people who were washed up on the islands before World War Two. what with DNA or something but yes the work is part of a national programme which the office is trying to find out the identity of people buried there with the help of the latest forensic techniques. Mm. Okay. So we, we could go out there. Find Dolman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't you think that's good? I you, quite like the idea of trying to find out if there are any British spies buried there. Yeah. Because there must be. Or Isn't a body there? that was washed up or around body, that time. If they can find a body that's an unidentified British body from around that would be pretty the turn good, of the century. It? That's good enough for me. That yeah, yeah. Me. Is that a good I'd enough? I'd say that's Dolman. Yeah. And then the final, I'm just on the suicide. I finished the suicide thing with the Mikado. <laughs> As someday it may happen that a victim must be found, I've got a little list 
I've got a little list of society offenders who might well be underground and who never would be missed, who never would be missed. There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs, all people who have flabby hands and irritating words. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. Ricardo is all about death. The, the high chief executioner with his little list. Yeah. You know Gilbert Sullivan very much. Anyway, there's, well, there's a character in it called Coco, who's the chief high executioner. And it's all about a mythical place in Japan where people get executed for flirting with each other. Okay. But he's the, high, he's the chief high executioner. And the stupid thing is that he was caught flirting. And so the Mikado, who's the emperor, made him chief executioner as punishment that, that, because he'd never execute himself, as it were. Uh, it says it argues that first it would be extremely indifficult or dangerous for him to attempt to execute himself, and secondly it will be suicide, which is a capital offence. Ah, oh, So basically what Gilbert and Solomon were doing were making fun of the suicide. of yeah execution and the laws of How Britain around this, about what yeah. nonsense they that are, and they don't make any that sense. That is genuinely very interesting. Right, and it, apparently it did. The Mikado was very, very popular. Yeah. In the 1890s, yeah. sorry, yeah. in the mid-1890s, yeah. it ran for years and years yeah. and accelerated a secular approach as it were so when you, so to what, suicide and, and the nonsense of suicide so was. your contention would be that this scene which reads rather oddly to us yeah might not have read quite so for the rising middle classes they would have gone would oh, oh yeah. that's interesting Dorman's killed himself yeah well, does it make him more dastardly and weird that he's prepared to kill himself, or is it? Or you think, oh, that makes him a sort of modern human humanist man? Well, we were talking this morning, weren't we, about before we were podcasting about this slightly weird episode where he starts saying, "I'm a double agent." Yes, and they say, "No, you're not," and he goes, "Yes, I am." And, and, and I would, I've got some things to say about double agents. No, but get us to Osmohorn. Well, there, there's not, there's not a great deal to say about Osmohorn. Obviously, in the book they sail to Osmohorn. You can't do that anymore. Because uh, the Lauversmere is now basically in the inland sea because a dike was built across the entrance to the Lauversmere in 1969. 25th of May 1969. The Lauversmere well, was really. enclosed and separated from the Wadden Sea. Yeah. An uncontroversial moment when the, uh, the place was made. Just sealed off. It was basically. just sealed off. So the people in Osmohorn, which at that point was a sort of small but relatively prosperous harbour, were like, well, hang on a minute, you've just... That's that's us gone. You know, we've got, we've got no business anymore. Crucially, the Lauversmere is now fresh water. Well, that would it that would suggest that you don't go in and out of it very much. Well, it's just you, well, it's just you can probably go out, but not in. Okay. I, I would imagine that means that the, the 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 level of the water on the inside of the dike is not the same as the level on the outside. But you don't want to be letting the outside in. You're confusing me now. Well, you don't want to let the salt water in. It's yeah, okay yeah, to yeah, let the yeah. Fresh water out. Yeah, no, I see that, but I don't know how you do that. Um, well, it would. Dep- I suppose it's Holland, right? So get get your head around it. But but uh, it might be that the water on the inside of the lock is higher than the seawater. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, which, but which how case, do you stop them mixing when you, you open the gate? Because it's a lock. <laughs> you go in. <laughs> yeah. You go into the lock into, from the from yeah. the fresh water. Yeah. The water's let out. You go down. Yeah. And then you, oh, but then you have to let it back up. You see, yeah. you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there's a solution. Obviously, there is a solution. <laughs> Saline solution. Saline, very good. <laughs> I was thinking the same with that. I thought, no, I'll do that. So, yeah, so Osmohorn, it's only a small place, and it got about 100 people living there. It uh, used to be a big fort. It used to be a big fort. Which so, was, again, he's gone to a place where they were worried about invasion from the Germans yeah, yeah, it was, and built a bloody big fort there. So, yeah. he, he even at the end, he's still, he's still giving you a sort of geography lesson, history lesson yeah. about 
we need forts. Yeah. Now, interestingly, um, you were talking a bit about the uh, the, the holdout in Schirmonikug. Yep. Well, actually, the commander of uh, Schirmonikug, the German commander, Commander Witko, they retreated from Osmohorn, the Germans, onto the island. So you Ah, uh, all the SS officers. They all went from, they right. all went from yeah, Osmohorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they left loads of things behind in Osmohorn. So when the commander, Commander Witko, found out about this, he was really annoyed because they left loads of sort of papers and stuff behind. So he ordered a raid on Osmohorn. What? He ordered a raid on April the 16th, I think it was. What, 1945? 1945. They were carrying on the war They were carrying then. on the war in Osmohorn. But so does, is there still remnants of that in the town, do you think? Do you think we could go and find a bit of uh, SS memorabilia in Osmohorn <laughs> as a thing to do? Uh, it would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. I can't, I can't see anything about that. Yeah, but what we're going to have to do is... It, 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 we're not really going to get to do this by boat, are we? We're going to have to then probably stop at the lock and then well, you can, there are boats and then walk into or cycle into leisure, Osmohorn. Well, there's leisure sailing in Osmohorn. There is still a, a oh, marine, okay. There is a marina at Osmohorn. Oh, well, that might be quite but fun. But because it's an inland sea, we can hire a little dinghy and just two for around. Because you, you, you're doing your sailing course. I'll, I'll be I'll be all over that. Well, I just need to do my competent crew. Yeah. <laughs> how, long have we, how long have we got? I know that um, could be tricky. So, uh, but I will leave them in Osmohorn. And leave you to talk about. Okay, the well, there is one other thing we can do in Osmohorn. What's that? Musical interlude. Oh yes, musical interlude. Because Osmohorn and Groningen yeah. are very big centre for uh, folk music in the seventies. Band a bit like Canterbury with Caravan, Soft Machine, and Soft Machine, oh, yeah. and all okay. that. The Groningen scene, man. The Groningen scene. The Groningen scene, and uh, still going. Uh, they like the Grateful Dead of Groningen, as far as I can tell, is turf. 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 T-O-R-F. No, they're not warming up. This is it. guy in the middle is going to sing in a minute. We might stop before that happens. We were saying before it's very tall, isn't it? Ah, no, 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 no the other one. Ah, yeah, no. So, so that's turf. Interesting. They do actually set the poems of Jan Burr to music, famously, okay. and he's a resident of Rotham. He was born in Rotham. So, th- so these are okay. Rotham songs. Okay. Johnny Rotham songs. Okay, very good. But the other big band in the scene, and I particularly like these, in 1974, the Dutch folk scene, is Fungus. Fungus. (laughs) Magnificent, as it says here on YouTube, magnificent and very underrated Dutch folk band with a rare hundred-year-old song. Okay. So this is from the 1870s, 1880s. Okay. Song that would have been sung in Osnohorn. Ik ben er de groene landstraatjes zo Well, they're, they're contemporaries. Yeah. They all look like him as well. They've got, they go to the same hairdresser, as far as I can tell. 
and they have the same sort of hand knitted waistcoats. That the beard of the gentleman on the right is rather uh, impressive. They, I know they are. They're, they're proper seventies hairy men. Hairy men from Ostmahorn. Hairy men and well, you're growing a beard. I am. Yeah. So we could be doing a bit of fungus and <laughs> yeah. Ostmahorn. So finally, I want to talk about double agents. Yeah. Now, I was saying to you before we started recording that I was a bit puzzled rereading this, that um, there's a moment where Dolman says... But I'm undercover. Yeah, that's right. Classic, classic, classic plot thing. twist of the... Uh... You pig-headed young marplot. <laughs> hey. I'm in British service. You're wrecking the work of years. And on the very threshold of success. Now, they, they sort of then don't believe him and yeah. say and call him out. And Carruthers calls him out by saying, I overheard everything you yeah, said yeah, yeah. on Mehmet, if we remember. But then he says, well, I'm going to have to have you arrested, says Dolman, yeah. and, and reaches for his revolver. Yeah. And then Carruthers does a thing where he says, no, well, I have the advantage of you. Your friends made an appointment behind your back, and I, in my misplaced zeal, have taken some trouble to attend it, so that I've had a working demonstration on another matter... The invasion of England. And uh, Dolman says, you lie. The implication being he doesn't know about the invasion. I think that's confusing. Because then that puts Dolman in the light that he is a double agent, that he's being patriotic, he's leading these people on about stuff. Well, no, but it might also and mean... The, and the, but the, he, now he has to leave because they'll find that out about him because of what Carruthers do, has done to sabotage the trip, they'll associate with Dolman, and that he'll be executed by the Germans now, if he what, stays. But there is a third option, is, is Dolman thinks he's working on another project. He doesn't realise the full scope of the project that the Germans right. are working on. Right, right. Then he's caught in a double bind, isn't he? But then I was thinking, again, going back to real-life examples of something like that, yeah. if you haven't read it on riddleofthesands.net, people, if you go back and read some posts, if you search for posts about spies on there... Yeah. You wrote rather a good one about the the beginnings, the first knockings of the yeah, English yeah, spying English system, spies, yeah, and, yeah. The, and who the role model would be of and a person like that, and the involvement of the Irish. And well, and yeah, clearly yeah. that Childers would have knocked around with some yeah. of these people. Yeah, yeah. You found some rather nice coincidences yeah. there. Well, I've gone back and just had a look at the German secret service okay. at this time. Well, it's called the Nachrichtenabteilung. The Nachricht, and it started in 1901. Ooh. It was set up. Uh, in fact, it was set up by the Kaiser and and a guy called Vice Admiral Otto von Diederichs. Uh, much against the advice of Tirpitz, who wasn't a fan, actually. He probably thought it was a little bit... Well, I think he thought... They not were gonna, a done thing. No, I think he more or less thought that he, he doesn't want another department vying for... Um, OK. Um, money. Uh, money and resources. Yeah. This is naval intelligence, let me tell you. Yeah. And the guy in charge, who I couldn't find much about, the first person in charge is a person called Commander Arthur Tapkin. Arthur? Arthur Tapkin. Whose qualifications may have been burnished by the fact that he was married to To an an English English woman. Interesting, interesting. Okay. But this is in 1901. Yes, so So I can't find... It couldn't have informed the book, could it? Well, I don't know. I can't find anything about Arthur Tapkin. I really can't. I would expect not to be able to. No, hardly anything. (laughs) But the here is a map on a nrscotland.gov.uk research. The Kaiser's spy in Scotland, naval espionage before the Great War. Yeah. He's got a lovely map here of the German spy network. Okay. With Arthur Tapkin at the top. And then this guy called Gustav Steinhauer, who also went under the various aliases, including W. Lewis. And then he ran a series of spies in Britain. 
yeah. who all had different names, which there's a guy called Schroeder, another called Henschel, all these kind of people. Gustav, so this guy, Gustav Steinhauer, born in 1870, German Navy, he trained at the Pinkerton Detective Agency in Chicago and spoke fluent English with an American accent. Then he'd been part of Kaiser Wilhelm's bodyguard at the funeral of Queen Victoria in 1901. Oh. During the visit, Hang Stein- on, there was a there was a British spy bit of that, wasn't there? Now I'm getting to that. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. During the visit, Steinhauer foiled an assassination attempt by a group of Russian anarchists on the Kaiser's life, working yes. alongside your guy, yes, yes, spy master William Melville. Yes, yes, yes. They worked together. They worked together. Steinhauer is responsible for the creation of a network of German spies in Britain in the period before the war. Steinhauer had mostly recruited his agents through writing to German businessmen resident in the UK, inviting them to work for him. Wow. MI5 soon clocked onto this activity and began intercepting the correspondences. So it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's all going on. It's so interesting that there's so many overlaps as well. Yeah, yeah. It's not clear again what happened to him in the end. I think he was arrested. I'm not, it doesn't say what happened There was happened a big roundup, wasn't there? There was a big roundup. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the date was. Yeah. But anyway, um, so we have got some characters here. We have. Operating exactly this time. Yeah. Now, what, why is... <laughs> sadly, he, he is sort of rather suggesting that Childers and the, the other sort of anti-German novelists at the time are, are bigging up this idea of people, yeah. Dolman-type figures, like they're really yeah, sort yeah. of clever, efficient yeah, people. Yeah. But generally they weren't. They weren't very good. No, they were a bit rubbish and they were all yeah. rounded up quite quickly. And the main reason was that as well as recruiting businessmen, they recruited criminals and mad people, really. Yeah. The foremost spies in the ring, Schultz, Gross, Graves and Henschels, were actually criminals. Gross being in prison at the time he was brought into the espionage <laughs> work. Schultz, this is the other one, a pattern of work for spy was become friendly with a woman, often a secretary or a typist. Schultz was released from an asylum to engage him in the work of spying, a fact that suggests desperation. He had a housekeeper and accidentally shot her while high at a party. <laughs> Parties were regular affairs on his houseboat. He his was houseboat? N- yes. Where was his houseboat? I don't know. He was notably unhinged in most respects. And after trying to suborn a solicitor to the cause of espionage, he was watched by police day and night. And, and it ended up being arrested. Fantastic. So those are the kind of people he was recruiting. And the last one I'll give you an example of is this guy, Carl Graves. This guy is unbelievable. He recruited Carl Graves, another crim, basically. He moved to Edinburgh to spy on the building of the new naval ports mm-hmm. up there. Okay, He arrived, this is a bit later on, he arrives there in 1912 mm. and start make, making notes about the Rosyth naval base. Mm. He's an extraordinary man because... He's there saying he's come to attend medical lectures and he sends messages about warships but in the, under the guise of pages in a medical diary. This guy Graves, though, is, then a, is a con man. He gets arrested for having a code book and maps and photographs and information about the Rosyth Dockyard. Mm. He's also found in possession of syringes, drugs and chemicals oh, for experimenting. Oh, God. So he's as high as a kite yeah, as well. Yeah. He's been taking drugs. He purchased a shotgun and rifle cartridges in Glasgow, pretending they were for duck shooting. Ducks again? Yes, so he's duck shooting, despite it being out of season. (laughs) Then he had a number of travel tickets that suggested he'd also been in Colombo, Ceylon, and in Naples under the name Dr Graves. And it also then he had a pawn ticket for a pendant bearing the name Max Meinker, which is possibly his real name. Uh. He's a real Zelig-type character. He actually didn't get executed, which he should have done for spying. 
because he managed to tell persuade the crown that he could tell them lots of other stuff about German network. Oh, yeah, so he was going to tell them. Yeah, he was going to. Eighteen months imprisonment was fairly lenient because he yeah, grasped yeah. up everybody else that he sort of knew. Right, then he left for Australia <laughs> and became Doctor René Sardon <laughs> and French. And then he was arrested for fraud there under another name, Charles Grieve. And then he became Dr. Graves and sold insurance. Uh, he had to leave Adelaide rather quickly because of unpaid bills. He ended up in Brixton Prison no. down the road. Really? He was in Brixton Prison. And then he received a royal pardon and was quietly released. Uh. Then he went to the US in pursuit of, supposedly in, in pursuit of a spy master. Yeah. But then he asked for repeated use of funds. He never found the spy master, just took the money. Published a book called The Secrets of the German War Office, which is an opportunity for self-promotion. And then in America was put in prison for fraud there in Tennessee. Released in 1937. He, w- he was then deported and disappeared into Germany and was never seen again. It's amazing, there was written a book about him. Yeah. In terms of Dolman figures, that's all much more believable to me of the kind of sort of con man, businessman, but also sort of could be telling you the truth, not telling you the truth. Well, I quite like this idea that he doesn't, he doesn't really know the scale of what it is he's involved in. I quite like that. I think it's a sign of uh, what we've said before is that he's not a proper Englishman. Not he's not trusted. a Carruthers. Yeah. And that he's a sign of the terrible things to come. Absolutely. Of the decline of the... Of, of, of the English character. Yeah, of people who are prepared to just commit suicide rather than face up to their face up to their thing. obligations yeah and will lie and double lie and work for anybody and all that I think Carruthers is absolutely appalled by him <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right oh, right so we're, we get to Osmohorn ah and thence by road and rail hurrying still gained Harlingen now there is a there's a railway line that runs along the quite near the top of uh, Dutch Frisia Dutch Frisia the Groningen area yeah from it starts in Neuschanz and it runs to Harlingen. Okay. And he goes through, I think, that he probably got on the train at a place called Wittenpost. Wittenpost. Which is about seven or eight miles south of Osmohorn. Now, according to my reliable Bradshaw from 1888... Oh, you love that book. There are trains from Wittenpost to Harlingen. Yeah. Now, they talk about getting there in the evening, they? do. They? There are trains at 5.09pm. Oh, no, it doesn't say that, actually. It says that evening they arrive in Osterhorn, and then it just says, and thence by road and rail hurrying still. But it doesn't say when they... Well, the so interesting... how long would they get take to get to Harlingen? Well, then? the interesting thing, I'll, I'll come to this, there's a, there's a 9.12 train. In the evening? In the evening. Right. 12 minutes past nine, which gets you into Harlingen at uh, 10 to 11. Oh, that's quite quick. Yes. But then a problem arises. Steamer. So steamer. they have to get the steamer from Harlingen to yes. uh, to London. Yes. Now the Harlingen to London steamer was operated by the General Steam Navigation Company of London. You love all this. I love all this. <laughs> which was the oldest steamship company in the world. And this is from the uh, Charles Dickens Jr.'s Diction- Dickens Dictionary of the Thames, 1881. Right. General Steam Navigation Company, 71 Lombard Street and Piccadilly Circus. Oh. The steamers of the General Steam Navigation Company start from and arrive at Iron Gate and St Catherine's Wharf. Now, I never heard of Iron Gate. Where is Iron Gate? Well, I found a picture of it. Iron Gate is a wharf that was directly alongside Tower Bridge. Look at that. Oh, that's a great picture. Right? 
So I did actually. I, f- I found some. Gosh, uh, she is exactly right. By right it. up against the uh, against the. So that's where they would have come northern. in from Harlem. Yeah, yeah. passengers get get off there, and I found a little etching which I put on the website. It's very steampunk. It's people getting off these steamers. The home stations oh. for the General Steam Navigation Company are Edinburgh, Newcastle, Hull, Yarmouth, Margate, Ramsgate. So you yeah. get to all those places from from there. The foreign stations are Stettin, Hamburg, Tonning, Harlingen, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerp, Bordeaux, Ostend, Calais, Beloit, Havre, Charente, and Oporto. Now, the trouble with this is, is that according to Bradshaw, yeah, but it's 1888, yeah, the ferries from Harlingen, yeah, which were actually mainly livestock ferries, they had a special cold room for butter, to take butter from the Holland to, to London, so there weren't very many pa- foot, foot passengers. But <laughs> he's, on foot butter ferry. he's on a butter ferry. He's on a butter ferry. It's a bit like getting the milk train. You talk about getting the milk train. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. It's about getting the milk train from London at four yeah. o'clock in the morning. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a bit like getting the milk train. The trouble with it is, is that according to Bradshaws, there are only two steamships a week from Harlingen to London. One on a Saturday. Yes. And one on a Wednesday morning. Now, according to my calculations, yes. the 26th of October is a Wednesday. Ah, so they would have got there Thursday. They've missed missed it. it. They've missed the boat. They've missed the boat. So they'd have to wait around until Saturday. Saturday. Uh, Thursday, Friday. So they've got to... uh, No, I get that just from sticking up to one of those websites. It's what day in history. No, 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 this is good. What on earth would... Davison Clara Dolman be doing for two days <laughs> in Harlingen. Poor old Carruthers, I mean, he's sitting there smoking his pipe and. I did find some pictures of. Playing Gooseberry. I did find some pictures of a, um, a steamship uh, by the general called the Loyarden, which is, you know, the Dutch steamship, yeah. which is an amazing thing. It looks like a gumbo. So we're going to end our journey. At the north end of Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge, but possibly not till the. This is now a hotel, isn't it? I've been in that hotel. It's called, it's called I can't remember what's I've been in that achieved. hotel. Is it not used as a location for that? Football hooliganism movie. Oh, Green. No, the one that the the, the the sort of eighties one with with Gary. What's his name in it? Gary Oldman. Uh, Gary Oldman. The Firm. Is it called oh, the, the Firm? firm. Do they not gather there for a drink after a game at oh, West Ham or something? Yeah, do they? As a as a sort of posh aspirational eighties <laughs> place to That's go. Very good. That for a beer and have a bit of a fight. Very good. I'm sure it is. So Iron Gate Wharf, destroyed by fire in 1846. In 1854, reopened the London, Leith, Edinburgh and Glasgow Steam Packet Company used the size of London Terminal. Also became the major London base of the General Steam Navigation Company. The wharf area is now part of the Thames Riverside Walk. So you're saying this story doesn't really end till the 29th of September? Yes, Saturday. And if it, I'm right about it being a Wednesday, and you'd get you get to London, I'm also saying you'd get to Tower Bridge. I'm also saying on the, that's probably enough. The <laughs> Tower Bridge. Well, no, no, that's based on the 1888 timetable, though, right? Okay. It might have changed by 1898. <laughs> they might have. Been. So we've. Got, so I've, what you're saying is we've got three more podcasts to do. <laughs> oh God, no! I'm not saying that. <laughs> Please, for God, no! And I'm saying they would have got on either the the Lion, yeah, which was the steamer that left on the Saturday. Or the Nora, which left on the Wednesday morning. So probably oh, the Lion. Great, you've got the boat names as well. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. That's so very go. good. So they're home. And here, therefore, I bring this narrative to an end. <sighs> what a journey. <laughs> Crikey, I've got chills. <laughs> they're multiplying. Childers. Club, any, any business. Any clubbers? We don't have much. Kim, Kim was... Well, on Facebook, I just wanted to say she'd said... You scared ship's dog. Unimpressed. <laughs> I, we, I don't like unimpressing Kim. He's, uh, he's so a... I replied, I said, look, he wasn't scared really. He was whining because there was a toy under the sofa that he couldn't quite reach. That's correct, isn't it? You he can was. back me up on that. I can back you up on that. So I'm making the public statement that no animals no. were distressed <laughs> in the making of this podcast, apart from the pigs in the head cheese. 
might have been a bit distressed. But generally, the ship's dog is now lying on a duvet, fast asleep, looking entirely comfortable. He's now, which is maybe the, the perfect image to end on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's exhausted, worn out by us. And then the second bit of club business I, I failed to mention last week, which was to say, we, I mentioned Nick had, had me up about not knowing my T.S. Eliot. Oh, oh yeah. But he had also sent me, well, a while back now, but I never said thank you for right. this. Which is he'd sent me a copy of The Battle of Dorking, published 1871. Have you seen this? The Battle of Dorking? The Battle of Dorking. Reminiscences of a Volunteer by George Chesney. Mm. It's the, one of the first examples of invasion literature. Oh, how interesting. And it, it describes, as if it were real, the German invasion of Britain. 1871? Yes. Yes. Year and off, how... Year after the Franco-Prussian yeah, War. Yeah, and talking how we weren't paying attention to what was happening and we, how, what big trouble it was. But it does it as if it had really happened on Tuesday, the 10th of August. So it's... Da- it's and it's... It's Tate and Loca- specific about, about those locations. podcast. It talks about an invasion point at Harwich as a diversion for the real one that was coming up through Hove. They invaded via Hove. Wow. And then came up and the big battle was uh, was at the ridge in Dorking, which it describes a lot and describes exactly where the where the, the army would have set up on the hill above Dorking. So we could actually go and find that. Uh, George Chesney. Is yeah. he famous? No, no, Chesney. no. But apparently it's, it's, it's what kicks off the first sort of, a lot of this kind of stuff about thinking about the Germans being capable of doing this stuff. Um, George Chesney. It's quite fun. Now you can borrow it if you want. It's, it, it's a very short read, which is nice. Uh, but it is very atmospheric. Oh. He was a British Army general. Interesting. Well, sensation of chess. Play. Thank you, Nick, because it, it's it's all part of the continuum, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's where Childers ends up. He put, he published it anonymously. That he was a big noise in uh, India. Actually, he championed Indianisation, admission of Indians into the higher British officer corps of the Indian Army. Mainly because, of, but he was unsuccessful because of the implacable opposition of General Sir Frederick Roberts then Commander-in-Chief of the Indian Army, who contended that these officer posts were properly reserved for the governing race. <laughs> Let's not end on that note. I've said, I've said, well, we must end on a reading. Yes. Should we add something from the epilogue? We'll yes. the epilogue a little bit. The, or the postscript. The postscript. About what actually happened. He's saying that while this book was in press, a number of measures have been taken by the government to counteract some of the very weaknesses and dangers which are alluded to above. Yeah. A committee of national defence has been set up and the welcome given to it was a truly extraordinary comment on the apathy and confusion which it is designed to supplant. So I suppose we just finish on the last paragraph? Yeah, do it. Lastly, a Manning committee has, among other matters, reported vaguely in favour of a volunteer reserve. There is no means of knowing what this recommendation will lead to. Let us hope not to the fiasco of the last badly conceived experiment. Is it not becoming patent that the time has come for training all Englishmen systematically, either for the sea or for the rifle? Oi, Davis! Oi, Carabas!